Welcome to Fruitful and Multiplying, a podcast from the Jewish Fertility Foundation. I'm your host, Ilana Frank. The first commandment in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. But what if, due to infertility, that path isn't so straightforward? This is a podcast about the fertility path less traveled. From the inspiring and the inspired, and the cutting-edge technology and science that continues to evolve to make it all possible. All right, here we go. Fabi and Josh fell in love in 2014. He was an army ranger and she was a medical esthetician. The pair traveled, checked items off their bucket lists, and enjoyed their relationship. But in the background, cancer demanded to be noticed. Upon learning of his diagnosis, Josh decided to preserve his sperm. Sadly, in 2016, Josh passed away from synovial sarcoma at age 27. Before passing, he expressed to Fabi that he wanted her to have his children, even if he would not be there to see them grow up. So in 2020, Fabi began her IVF journey. She's since been through five egg retrievals and two embryo transfers. Let's hear more about Fabi's journey today on Fruitful and Multiplying. Fabi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. All right. So I know we had some scheduling difficulties on my end. I had COVID last week, but oh. you just, it, it wasn't as awful as it was. It the has first been. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It was kind of a little bit of a vacation on the couch. Like nice. I had to cancel meetings and got to, but, um, but you also have been dealing with some cancellation of stuff. Tell me what's going on with your recent embryo transfer. Yes. So I was supposed to have my third embryo transfer on Wednesday and I have had a history of, um, struggling with a thin endometrial lining. It's just, you know, been a pain point throughout this journey for me. And it was just at a place where we could probably push it and get it to like the minimum of what we're comfortable with. And I've just been on this journey for way too long and have way too precious of an embryo to take a chance knowing that my body just wasn't cooperating this month, like wasn't in a place to have the best environment for this embryo to thrive. So, you know, there's different schools of thought, whether or not lining matters or doesn't matter. In my history, I've transferred two perfectly healthy embryos and they both failed. We've done multiple testings on me to rule out anything that might be preventing me from having success. And so at this stage in the game, I just waiting sucks and putting things on hold suck, but, um, you know, regret is far more painful. So I decided to pull the plug on this one and just listen to my gut and my body, which was telling me, you know, this perfectly healthy embryo is still on ice waiting for you when your body is in the perfect, um, you know, condition to be able to accept this, this embryo and hopefully finally get that positive pregnancy test. So difficult decision for sure. Um, you know, I, I didn't make it like at the drop of a hat, I waited over the weekend and just tried to really understand my feelings on it. And, you know, the plan was to recheck my lining on Tuesday and then move my transfer to Friday and just all the logistics that I would have to change and the added expenses and work, you know, because we have lives outside of our IVF lives is very stressful right now. I'm like, I feel like I'm setting myself up for failure right now. This just does not feel good. So 
pulled the plug this month, but we still got our perfect little embryo waiting for whenever the time is right. Hopefully sometime this spring. Man, you are like in the thick of it. Um, Wow. And we're going to get into like way more details about that if you're open to it. But I want to hear first, like, what's your love story? I mean, how did you and Josh first meet? Like, take us back years ago and, you know, tell us how the journey started before all of this. Sure. It's so hard to like keep it short. So I'll do my best to just add, you know, the important details. But I was in my late 20s visiting Nashville from Southern California where I was born and raised. And I came with two of my best friends and we had a fun trip planned. We, you know, went and we went to the Ryman and saw Jared Neiman play. And then we had tickets to go see the Cowboys and Titans play. And it was after that game that we ended up back on Broadway and went to Honky Tonk Central, which was our favorite bar on that trip. And it just so happened that my future husband walked in the bar right after we had got settled in there. And of course, I never imagined it turning into what it did, but it ended up being this extraordinary love story and unfortunately got cut very short. Um, so to fast forward, I went back home, Josh and I just never stopped talking after meeting at the bar that day. And two months into our long distance love story, Josh was unfortunately diagnosed with a really brutal form of cancer called synovial sarcoma. It's a soft tissue cancer. There's a hundred over a hundred subtypes of sarcoma. So you may have heard of the term sarcoma before, maybe not synovial sarcoma, but Josh was an army ranger, played football at West Point and, you know, just one of the toughest guys you could ever come across mentally and just never met a stranger, you know, just such a warm soul and my favorite person to do life with. And so it was a clear decision for me to face the battle with him, you know, although it was really early on in our relationship, I had already fallen in love and vice versa. And we were already in the process of me flying back out to go on our official first date. And we actually, one of our, um, first like big moments as a couple, we did new year's Eve at the grand old Opry hotel and, or the Opryland hotel. And, um, you know, that coincidence is kind of amazing. I love that little wink from heaven. I think um, the but, wink is that my husband and I, after like three weeks of dating, went went to the hotel and he told me he knew he was going to marry me. He denies it today, but sure, I think I actually like, I have it on video. That. He totally like that. It, that's amazing. I I just love those little nuances that happen on a regular basis if you're you know open to to seeing them. I just think that's amazing. Um, so. We just continue this love story despite this cancer diagnosis that was unfortunately placed in our path. And, you know, if anyone was going to beat this battle with cancer, it was him. And, you know, luckily his cancer was contained. The prognosis still wasn't great just because of the type of cancer it is and where it was in his lower abdomen slash pelvis area. Amputation is usually the best option for sarcoma still. Um, After all these years, there's just not a really solid treatment option that provides long-term success, you know, even after remission. So we had all the hope in the world because that's just who we are. And uh, Josh came back to California, met my family and five months into this love story, I moved to Nashville and we faced this battle head on and utilized 
every opportunity to just truly live life to the fullest, knowing how precious every day was, and especially facing this devastating disease that can take a turn at any moment. You know, I think that was the blessing with the diagnosis was how we spent our time, you know, and I think unfortunately it takes something like cancer or a terminal illness or a death close to your heart to make you realize like life really is fleeting, you know, like we're not promised to live to 85, 95, you know, that's just how we live our lives thinking that we're going to grow old. And so that was a huge, uh, gift to us. And one of the bucket list that we started when we started dating was to visit all the major league baseball stadiums. And so we did nine together in the two little over two years that we had together. And during this process, obviously there were a lot of ups and downs with treatments, um, surgeries going awry and recoveries from that. And, chemo and radiation, you know, in between all of the mess, there was so much beauty in our story and we continued to plan for our future and continue to live our lives like we would have forever. So you're having these like normal conversations that other young, young couples are having like kids and what did that look like? Yeah. So it's interesting. Like we both aligned so well early on in our relationship, which is why we had such a deep rooted connection right off the bat. You know, our hopes and dreams were aligned and our just view of life, um, you know, faith, all of that was in line. We both wanted a family desperately. Family was so important to us. And so, yeah, we, we just knew that one day we would get married and have children And so the unique part of our process, of course, is this cancer diagnosis. So luckily we're in a place in life where it was more common than not to advise younger cancer patients to either freeze their eggs or freeze their sperm prior to going into chemo or radiation, knowing the potential negative impact that it could have on later fertility, should you want to build a family later on the other side of cancer, right? especially in the location where his cancer was. So this was at the very beginning stages of our relationship. So Josh proactively froze his sperm before starting cancer treatment, which was just a couple months into us dating. So it wasn't like I'm reserving my sperm for our future family. It was just, you know, if we end up getting married, like let's check this box so that we have this sacred sperm saved. Should we have issues getting pregnant later in life? So that piece was huge. And I'm a huge advocate of just being proactive about your fertility, whatever your story is, you know, because our eggs are are not getting any younger and, you know, you, you just never know what could happen. And I have so many people, widows in particular, reach out wishing that they had this opportunity, even if they didn't take it just to have it on the table as an option. So fast forward, Josh and I end up, or Josh proposes in um, May of 2016. So we met in September of 2014. So went back to California on the beach in uh, Laguna Beach, just right near where I grew up. And he got down on one knee. He was at this point in remission from his cancer. And we had our whole lives ahead of us. And it was one of the best days of my life. I've always wanted to be a wife and I love, love, you know, just as much as the next person who's, who loves love more than anybody. And it was just amazing 
to know that I, I found my person, you know, that I got to spend forever with. And shortly after that proposal, Josh and I flew back to MD Anderson in Houston, which is where he was being treated at the time and just had some follow-up scans. And that is when we were told that his cancer had metastasized to his lungs, which is not great (laughs) to say the least, if you know anything about metastatic cancer. So at that point we had a couple treatment options. So hope was still on the table of time, you know, like we knew this cancer was going to take his life at some point, but we still had hope to gift us more time. So we went through two different chemo options. And by August, we found out that neither of them were working. And so with that, the cancer was spreading really rapidly. So in August, our oncologist sat us down and, you know, had that just heart-wrenching conversation that I'm so grateful that she had the guts to, to have that conversation with us so that we could live out the rest of our days the way that we wanted to and chose to. So she told us, you know, Josh isn't going to make it to your wedding, which was being planned for May of 2017. And, you know, that reality was gut-wrenching. We had so much hope leading up to this point in the journey and hope is what carries you. And to have this like concrete news of your time is coming to an end and having to make the decisions of what does that look like and having to have really, really painfully hard conversations, but looking back also being so grateful that we had this window of time where we could have these hard conversations. So we left that appointment and I'll never forget sitting out in the waiting room. I don't know where everybody else was, but it was just us sitting there. And I was thinking like, okay, well, what are we going to do about our wedding? Is this still something that we want to prioritize knowing that we have limited time? And the first words out of Josh's mouth was, what about our babies? And so uh, it gets me so emotional every time I talk about it, but Um, that was that validation that he gave me. Like, I trust you to be the mother of our children, regardless of if I'm here or not is like the greatest honor for one. And for two, just allowed me to breathe when I was in a place to make a decision, whether or not I wanted to move forward with this, having his blessing you know, having their dad's blessing, knowing that he wanted them so bad that he was willing to entrust that role of mother and father to me. So, you know, after he said that, he proceeded to say, you know, how amazing would it be to have a little piece of me live on forever? And it's, that just replays in my mind over and over and over again, because anybody who met Josh knows what an incredible person he was and what a shame it would be to not have a little piece of him live on forever. Um, That's beautiful. Um, It's beautiful. Can I ask, was everybody in your life supportive of this, you know, conversation, family, parents, people can be very opinionated. Sure. 
Um, that's a great question. So, you know, if you've been through grief and loss, you know that people act a little crazy after the fact. So the good news is we never really shared this with anybody. This was like sacred conversations that we had just between the two of us. And Josh and I also, you know, had conversations about like, well, what would this look like? Um, you know, having noticed that your life is coming to an end, you have an opportunity to write things down. And luckily for me, and I know you've probably just talked about this, um, but from a legal standpoint, it gets a little bit sticky. So luckily for me, Josh had made it clear in his will that should something ever happen to him, that he wanted his wife to have his sperm. So spoiler alert, we ended up getting married. Um, and he ended up getting called home just a month after our wedding. But luckily with this warning of uh, his fleeting time, he, he, he made his wishes very clear. Had he not made his wishes very clear, that would have been a really different situation. Um, and not because, you know, the family is by no means not supportive of us and our love and our future and all these things. People are just crazy after people die and they want to grab a hold of any sort of control that they possibly can. So after the fact, and because I waited four years to even start this process, a lot of healing was done during that time. And when I decided to make this decision, because there was so much healing done already, obviously we're continually trying to heal from, from loss and grief. And it's, I don't think we ever do, but fully, but I think that is what made everybody supportive because we were all kind of in a place where we were thinking clearly and, you know, not in this weird turmoil of like, trying to grab a hold of things and start unnecessary drama and so on and so forth. So I am extremely fortunate and blessed to have everybody in my life be supportive of this decision. And it's crazy because when I was making this decision, it was right on the tail end of COVID. Like I was just going to ask, how did, Mm -hmm. how did COVID, you know, play a role in that four years and the timing and all of that? Yeah. So COVID played a huge role in me actually finally making this decision. So as a young woman, I mean, I was 29 when Josh passed away. So I still had, you know, (laughs) a lot that I wanted to accomplish. One being hopefully falling in love again, whenever that time was right, which still has not happened, but I wanted to give myself a fair chance at life after loss being beautiful. You know, it's never going to be what Josh and I had, but Josh and I had what we had because of our circumstances and the time that we shared it. It, it was what it was supposed to be, which is a realization that I'm recently just coming to and has released me of a lot of, um, energy that has been maybe holding me back. That sounds so healthy. (laughs) I mean, that sounds like good therapy and healthy and yes. The greatest gift. We're actually, uh, my coach, uh, Dr. Goldman, and I are actually doing a mastermind on this in May, trying to help other people release energy that's been carried with you. That's just 
killing you from the inside out and not allowing you to really experience life and all that it has to offer. And especially with grief, it's such a complicated thing, but if you can just see it for what it is and break it down, it's hard work, but I mean, I truly feel like I have 2000 pounds that were just lifted off of my shoulders. And I have such a strong appreciation for what was and the same respect and excitement for what is and what will be because they're all separate things. And, um, you know, for a long time I was living in this space that I think a lot of us widows do is where we constantly are thinking about the fantasy of what our lives would be if this tragic scenario didn't happen. And then not really understanding that what it is, is a fantasy and that what was is the beautiful thing that it was. And what is now is because of what was. So looking at all the beautiful things that exist in your life in this moment would never be here if this loss didn't take place. So it's all the things that are taken from us are always replaced with other beautiful things. It's just, you know, being willing to open your eyes to, to see those things and really appreciate them. And it just allows you to release this anger and this, um, I don't know, like whatever spiritual connection that you have, whatever your beliefs are to not feel like anything's against you. Like this is all for us. We just have to be willing to see it that way, you know? And and it's not like, why does life keep happening to me? Why can't, like, I could easily say that with my IVF journey. Like my husband got stolen from me. Why is this IVF journey so painfully brutal. Like this shouldn't be this hard. But again, like, would we be sitting here talking, having this conversation if this wasn't what it was? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, man. So, okay. So you're, you're a widow. You're going to, you know, I think a lot of our listeners understand what a typical experience retrieving your eggs and going through all the things in the fertility clinic. What was it like for you when you made that decision to have your first egg retrieval? You know, how did you walk in the door? I'm sure they're asking questions. What was that experience like for you? Um, not great. So I live in the South, obviously. Um, there's some beautiful things about living in the South and there's some, you know, challenging things. I think, uh, I come from Southern California, so I feel like open-mindedness is much more common there, right? Like, um, unconventional things are much more, uh, accepted. So like I said, this was like coming right out of COVID. So I tried dating for a little while. Um, and you know, that just wasn't transpiring. I'm like, I don't even want to go on a third date with this person, let alone like settle down and have a family with them. And family is very high up on my value list. So then it's like, okay, the world shuts down. I'm stuck in my home with my dogs and my thoughts. And I'm like, what am I doing? You know, like I've wanted a family my whole life. I've wanted to be a wife my whole life. I've wanted to be in love my whole life. I am fortunate enough to have found all of those things. And here I am, somebody who has been blessed with the opportunity to potentially still have my family with the person that I wanted to be the father of my children. Is everybody going to understand that? No but they're, they also don't have to live in my body and my mind every day. So I need to make this decision based off of what's best for me. So 
my best friend who's actually here visiting right now, she is also a widow from the same type of cancer that Josh passed from. We met through my nonprofit and she actually has frozen sperm of her husband that she is unsure what she wants to do with. Uh, but she was the first person that I called when I was like, family is everything. I'm, I think I'm ready to do this. I think this is the move. I have had finally enough time to just sit with my thoughts and think. I'm sure we all like finally had enough time to slow down during COVID to really think about our lives and our future and, you know, made some hard decisions. So she, she was the first one who was like, that's going to be a hell yes for me. And she's my voice of reason. Like Josh was my voice of reason. So to get a hell yes from her, knowing that she fully understands this situation that I'm putting myself in. Then it was my mother-in-law was battling ovarian cancer and she and I are very, very close. And she was a huge person that I needed approval from because I valued her opinion so much. I mean, she raised Josh on her own for quite some time and did such an incredible job. I mean, he's, he and his brother are two of the best guys that I know. So if she can do it, I can do it. Right. And she was so incredibly supportive. And then of course, Josh's brother was the next on the list. I knew my family would back me on whatever I felt was right for me. And so those three people, those were my core people that I was like, okay, let's do this. And I ended up losing my mother-in-law in in December of 2020. So right before I really got started, I had done consultations with multiple clinics. She was a part of that. We had started a GoFundMe and they were both very supportive of that. And, you know, just being able to talk to her and pick her brain before she left to go be with Josh was a huge, huge blessing. Um, You know, during that time, we also discovered that she was BRCA2 positive, uh, which is the breast cancer gene. And then I had... Josh's blood stored at a genetic banking facility. Should I ever want to move forward with IVF, I wanted to be sure that I could, um, you know, test our embryos against any negative factors, uh, such as the BRCA mutation. So anybody who knows about BRCA knows this, but most don't. So because Josh's mom was a carrier, her children have a 50, 50 chance, whether or not they'll carry the gene. Well, Josh's brother does not. And Josh does. So you are you know. wise and Josh was wise <laughs> like that. That's huge to know, to be able to bank that. I, again, Man. our oncologist was incredible at guiding me because had I not had her in my corner, I actually had to beg the hospice center to draw his blood because they typically don't do that in that setting. And I'm like, you don't understand. Like, this is so important if I ever want to move forward with having our children. And luckily the nurse was like, I'll make it happen. Don't worry. Um, whoever she is, if she ever hears this, like you are a godsend. So we had that piece. So once I started this journey, um, we found out that Josh was bracket positive as well. So that gave us the option to then um, test our embryos, which has made this process even more complicated. But to an- answer your first question, so I consulted virtually because we were still like tail end of COVID. So I consulted virtually at a local clinic. And at first I felt like, okay, they're open-minded. I feel supported somewhat. And then when I finally had my appointment in the office, something flipped and, uh, she was pretty horrible to me and just very negative. I'm there alone, mind you. And being a a young widow 
without a child sitting in a fertility clinic surrounded by couples for one. And then for two, some pregnant couples, it's like a dagger straight through the heart, right? And just maybe twist it a couple of times. It's hard to be in that setting and to face it alone. It's such a scary journey period, but to like, just go in there by yourself, it's so intimidating and uh, painful and, you know, triggering, but so that was not a great experience. I was immediately, it was like, this one's not for me. I don't feel supported. This is going to be challenging to do on my own. I need a team that is Kudos. on yep. my side, right? So I did give my chance myself a chance to try a different doctor at that same clinic. And then the experience that day just wasn't great. Like they overcharged me. I sat in a room half naked for like 45 minutes waiting for the doctor. Like again, just like a second layer of this might not be the place for you. So talked to a couple of friends who had, you know, friends of friends who went for, through IVF, actually talked to Josh's oncologist again. She's like my person. And she's like, I have a friend who went to CCRM in Colorado. They were amazing. Uh, they actually got her, her, her baby and she got treated locally, kind of had a similar experience and ended up there. So fast forward, I end up at CCRM Lone Tree. I do it, two egg retrievals there. I end up doing two embryo transfers there with a lot of mess in between, not anything against the clinic, just, you know, the mess of IVF and the odds in my case are just really not great because of the BRCA mutation. So we transferred two healthy embryos separate from each other, had lining issues along the way, some canceled transfers along the way, a lot of devastation along the way. And unfortunately, both of those transfers failed. So Fast forward, I switched clinics um, to Brown Fertility, just again, like the universe kind of just pushing me in a different direction. Listened to my gut, went through three egg retrievals with Brown. The the genetic testing side of that was extra brutal there for whatever reason. And all of our healthy embryos on the first one were BRCA-positive. Then we did another one and we got one perfectly healthy embryo. That is now our perfectly healthy embryo on ice that we're waiting to transfer when my lining decides to get it stuck together and did a third retrieval just back and forth to Denver. Did I miss that? Or you ended up? I was going back and forth to Denver for my first two retrievals and two transfers. Then once those two transfers failed, the universe just took me to Jacksonville, Florida, and I started treatment with Brown Fertility. Then I was going back okay. and forth with Brown for three egg retrievals. With those three egg retrievals, we got one healthy embryo. We have plenty of BRCA positive embryos, which is great, but not great, right? If we're trying to avoid this cancer mutation in our in our family. So on that second retrieval, we got our one perfectly healthy embryo that we had been waiting for. And just as like a cushion, we did a third egg retrieval just in hopes that we could maybe have two or three embryos waiting, um, just with my history of failed transfers. And we didn't get any on the third one either. So then it was like, maybe this is God just telling me like, just trust me. Like you don't need another embryo. This is the one just go for it. And so, like we said at the beginning of this, that embryo was supposed to be transferred on Wednesday. And as life would have it, my lining was the thinnest it's ever been um, during this cycle. Coming off of a a trial transfer, 
I did the whole ERA receptive, all that just as a extra precaution, since we still just don't know why the previous transfers failed, but, um, everything came back to normal, which was reassuring. So we had a great protocol plan that my lining was the thickest it's ever been on that protocol. We repeated the same exact protocol and my lining was the worst it's ever been. So if that tells you anything about IVF, it's that you can't trust anything. There is that little God fact. There's medicine, there's your body, and there's that little extra factor, which we don't know what it is. And we Um, don't always listen to it. So are you in the middle of the cycle or do you have to wait again till next month? Oh, I'm waiting You want to wait till spring, you said. Well, so my current clinic is booked for March. So the next available opportunity for transfers in April, I've got some internal feelings going on that I'm trying to sort through to figure out what my next move is. So what I'll probably do this month, just to be proactive about this little break that I have is, um, you know, test my ovulation and go ahead and actually probably go in and test my lining and see if a potential like modified natural transfer could be on the table. Um, I think the more knowledge we have, the more empowered we can be to make decisions about our care. So that's what I'll probably do this month is just, you know, do some ovulation testing and just maybe some blood work and check my lining on no meds and just kind of see where we're at. And then you know, decide whether or not I want to do this transfer at Brown in April, or if I go in a completely different direction. I think, you know, as you know, having one embryo puts so much freaking pressure on the decisions that you're making. And this work that I've been doing that we were talking about earlier has really put me in a place where I can actually feel things. (laughs) You know, you go numb for so long, like protecting yourself from grief and loss. And especially because of all the ups and downs of IVF, you, if you are a widow going through this, I don't only lose my embryo and the potential baby. I lose a piece of Josh every time I, I face, um, you know, a failure along this journey. So it takes a huge toll on you emotionally. I think at some point you just become like a callous version of yourself where you just like, don't really know what you're feeling anymore and don't know what your gut is. And if, if you do know what your gut is, you don't always listen to it because it seems complicated and you've been going through this for three years and you're like, let's just do this. I just want to get it over with. So I'm in this place where I'm very in tune with what my gut is telling me and my feelings on it. So in the past, maybe where I would have felt rushed to like move the mountains to make this happen against what everything was telling me. I think it's a really beautiful place to be in to, to know and to trust. Like I know God's plan for my life is far more extraordinary than the one that I have for myself. And instead of pushing against it as hard as I can to make what I want happen at the time that I want it to happen, to just like throw your arms up and say, okay, I hear you. I'm listening. Now is not the time. Like show me what's next, like open the door to where I'm supposed to go next instead of forcing things to happen. So this embryo will be transferred in 2023. I just don't know when or where quite yet. I haven't fully made that decision, but I'm giving myself some grace and some time to kind of allow um, the right direction to be provided to me. So I I don't you are so 
guys, you are so, I mean, I don't know if you can appreciate the lessons that you're sharing while you're in it, but I think it's, you're teaching us a lot for all different areas. You know, everybody has a different situation and, and I just really appreciate your perspective today. Um, wow. Okay. I feel like I've learned a lot. Um, <laughs> I really have. I mean, it's, you know, we can go, we go on a lot with, you know, like reproductive attorneys and therapists, but it's really, really nice to hear, you know, the human perspective of what you're going through and we're rooting for you and your Thank success, you. whatever that means. Sure. Um, I think my last question would be, you know, why do you, you're, you're very public about your story. Um, which I appreciate because it's always important to kind of help break the stigma of many of the situations that you've gone through. Sure. Why do you think that, you know, the media has really taken an interest in, in your conversation and your story that you're sharing? You know, I think with social media, there is so many highlight reels out there and so many unrealistic depicted versions of people's lives. And I, if I can do anything in this world, it's to share my life experience so that I can leave people better than when they found me. I never want somebody to look at my life and be like, I wish I had her life. I want them to look at my life and say, because she can do this, I can do this. You know, I don't want to be this unrealistic thing that people are trying to attain because none of that is real. You know, the highlight reel is great, but it's this much of your life. And I think the whole purpose of social media being used to our benefit is to share our life lessons, to share the things that helped us get through our lowest points in our lives, to give people an idea of what their best friend who's going through IVF is actually going through. It's not common and it's becoming much more common, which I think is amazing for people to truly show you the ins and outs of this journey. And I knew that I couldn't do this alone. So before I started this journey, I had to make this decision do you want to make this public? And if you do, you're faced with a lot of things that are going to come with that. Most of them will be really beautiful blessings, but that's also going to go with a lot of opinions, unsolicited advice, and people who just will never understand the why behind what you're doing. And you have to get to a place where you just don't care because the greater good is there. And I have those daily reminders every single time I open up my social media, whether it be TikTok or Instagram, where I mainly show my, my life, it's the validation. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Because of this, I did this. Or because of you, I decided to do one more round and we got pregnant. Whatever it may be, like you give me hope. You make me feel like on my darkest days, like I can keep going and that things will get better. And that trumps everything else. And I could never be where I'm at today in this fertility journey with my platform, without the people who are here on this journey with me, this village who has given me the opportunity and the blessing to even go through this turmoil. You know, this turmoil is a gift that not everybody has. And 
I think it's a story of hope. I, I think we're all struggling. We all have our own adversity that we face on a day to day. And the more people that we can have showing us like how to get through it and how to not fall into this victim mentality and how to still see the beauty in life despite the pain. I believe in my soul, that's why I was put here. And that's the, why I have this drive to share because it's so clear to me that that is what God gifted me with the ability to, to share and to not care about the opinions of others because along the way you're, you're, you're helping equip so many other people to live a much more fulfilled life or love more fiercely than they ever thought they could or have, you know, have in their lives knowing that it's fleeting. So I think that's why I I think it's, you know, people are searching for hope. They're, they're searching for, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, the silver lining. And I feel like my story continues to be that. And, you know, I just, I don't want people to feel alone in their struggle. So that's why, that's why I share. I love it. I thank you for being here and we're rooting for you. So good luck. Thank you so much for this. Your platform, I have to say, what you've created is is absolutely exceptional. You have such a warm soul. I'm so grateful to have had this opportunity. So thank you again. And I know this probably won't be the last time that we speak. And Mm -mm. you know, I'm just so grateful. So thank you again for your time today. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Fruitful and Multiplying. And as always, reach out with more podcast ideas and feedback. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Jewish Fertility Foundation.